Amen. How are we doing this morning, everyone? Are we well? Are we well? Some of us are well. That's good to know. That's good to know. Are the rest of us not well? Are we okay? No, okay. Um, we were away at the Vineyard National Leaders Conference this week, which was amazing. If you get the chance to go back, all the talks and seminars are all online. I would highly, highly, highly recommend going and having a listen to some of the talks. They were incredible. There was a guy there called John Mark Comer who just brought a real fresh perspective on uh, living life well as a Christian. And so if you get a chance to listen to any talks this week, go and listen to his talks at the NLC. It will really help uh, shape and form some stuff for you. But when we were there, we felt like God was giving us a bunch of words and giving us a bunch of stuff for our site. We feel really excited about this next season uh, and feel particularly excited. I feel like God was saying that he was going to ignite some passion in our site. So I just thought we could maybe make a start on that this morning. So I'm going to get you out your comfort zone a little bit now. Okay, usually we sit in church on a Sunday morning and we nod in approval and we occasionally, if we feel really excited about what's going on, we'll give a wee, mm, yes, amen, that's good. But I'm just going to, like, let's just break a wee something just now. So I'm just going to get you to cheer your loudest cheer, not for anyone in the room, but for Jesus because he's so incredible. And so we're just going to go three, two, one, and then we're just going to cheer our loudest cheer. I'll give you an example of what a loudest cheer isn't. Good effort. So we're going to go for it. You ready? Three, two, one, go. Come on. Come on. Come on, come on, come on. Yes. Guys, if we are going to see people join us, if we are going to uh, see people want to inherit the kingdom of God, we're going to have to be a passionate people, a people who care deeply about the word, a people who are passionate about prayer, a people who are passionate about worship, a people who exude the kingdom wherever we go. And so we're going to be practicing that loads over these next few weeks. But this morning, we are carrying on in our series called The Cost. Uh, oh, I've just realized I haven't given Linda my slides. How very inconvenient of me. They're, they're on my laptop there. That may be too late now. It may be too late. <laughs> I was so excited about the cheer that I've just let everything else go out the window. Anyway, we are carrying on in our season called The Cost, uh, and it's in Matthew chapter... <laughs> so professional. I'm so sorry if you came here for a very slick, well-organized service this morning. You will rarely find that. I'm so sorry. Um, but we are carrying on in our series in Matthew this morning. It's Matthew 18, uh, verses 1 to 5 we're going to be reading. And we've, we're in this series called The Cost, and basically we are, are, are calculating what does it cost for us to be disciples of Jesus? What does it actually cost for us to be followers? There's a cost that we pay when we hand our lives over to him. It is worth it, but it is a high cost. And so we're just tallying that up and being like, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Uh, and this week's passage, we enter uh, Matthew 18, chapter 1 to 5. Um, and what, what's just happened at the end of chapter 17 is the disciples have basically been having an argument uh, about which one of them is the greatest. They're walking along the road. Jesus is kind of ahead and they're like, I'm the greatest because I've done this. And maybe somebody else is like, no, no, I'm the greatest because I've done this. And somebody else is like, oh, but I'm the greatest because, you know, my robe is the whitest and I start it real good. Uh, and they're all having this argument. And so, and so eventually it gets to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, what, like, which one of us is the greatest? Tell us which one is the greatest. And this is how Jesus responds. Um, oh, you guys are so good. Look at that. That's got a password on it and everything. Who cracked the password? Well done. <laughs> Points to Sarah. Well done. Um, and so uh, we are going to look this morning at that. But I wanted to tell you a story first. I had this job when I was a student where I worked in a bookshop in Glasgow. Uh, and there was loads of people I got to meet during that time. And there was often uh, foreign exchange students came over. And there was this one guy called Daniel. He came from Tanzania. And he was one of my favorite people that I met when I was in the bookshop. He was about this tall. 
uh, and he proposed, I think, to every girl in the store in his time with us. I think he tried to get married to every single girl who worked in the store at one point or another. He was like, I'm going to find a wife while I'm here. And so he just systematically went through people being like, maybe you would like to be my wife. Maybe you would like to be my wife. Anyway, it came the day where he was to go back to Tanzania. He'd been training in theology, and he was going back uh, to pastor a church in Tanzania. And so I was like, Daniel, I don't want you to to have to carry all your bags uh, on the airport bus. I'm going to take you over to the airport. So I took him to the airport. And as I picked him up, uh, this is basically, this isn't him, but this is what it looked like when I picked him up. He had a suitcase that basically came up to his shoulders, and I was like, Daniel, have you... Uh, check the weight limits on this bag. Have you have you measured it? And he was like, I am absolutely certain this will be under 20 kilograms. And I'm like, it's not going to be under 20 kilograms, but he's, he's adamant. So I take him to the airport. He goes to check in. I'm standing. It's becoming a really fun spectator sport for me at this point. I'm like, oh, I wonder what they're going to do with this. And he comes rolling back his bag towards me two minutes later. And he's like, I am 15 kilograms over the 20 kilogram limit. <laughs> I was like, okay, mate, we're just going to have to get rid of some stuff. So he sat on the ground and he kindly donates to me a whole bunch of his stuff. He's got, and when he opens his bag, I'm like, what have you got in here? There's candles and there's CDs. There's a, there's a full length mirror in there that he's taken back with him. There's everything. So we keep taking stuff out, going and measuring it. Nope, there's still too much. He brings it back. Anyway, after maybe three or four attempts, we got it down to 20 kilograms. And I left the airport with like this much stuff in my hands to take back to my car. You might be wondering what the point of this is. Here's my point. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, there's some stuff that we're going to have to leave behind that can't come with us. There's no place for it in our lives. If we're going to be passionate, sold out followers of Jesus, we're going to have to put some stuff down and leave it there and never return to it again. That is part of the cost. And so today we're going to read Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 to 5 and find out what is the cost of true kingdom greatness. If you need a Bible, there are some Bibles stacked on the ends of the rows. You can pop your hand up. Uh, Maybe you've never uh, been in church before. You can download uh, the Bible on the App Store. It's incredible. Uh, There's lots of different apps. Uh, If you just type in Bible, you'll be able to download a Bible. We tend to read from a version called the NIV, which is the New International Version. Um, But have a look around and see which one fits for you. So we're going to read Matthew 18, verse 1 to 5. Father God, we pray that you would bless these words that they would come to life as we read them aloud just now and that your glory would be displayed as we pursue you this morning. Amen. Why don't we stand and we'll read the word together. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Amen. Why don't we sit down? I think the first thing that really jumps out uh, as part of the cost of greatness in this passage is that part of the cost is change. The change is going to cost us. Jesus makes this call for us and he says, unless you change, there's an expectation that when we follow him, some things in our life are going to have to change. We're going to have to hold some things lightly. We're going to have to pick up some other things. We're going to have to do things a little differently, but we're going to have to make a conscious choice to change. He says, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never 
enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is fascinating because children in the time where this was being written and Bible writing times were almost the lowest of the low rung of society. They had no voice. They had no authority. They weren't respected. They weren't sought out for their wisdom. Uh, they were basically seen as a commodity that would add future value to the family. That was how children were viewed. And Jesus says, unless you change and become like these guys, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says the first step to true greatness is change. We have to change. And that must have come as a bit of a slap in the face for the disciples because they were like, we've left our businesses behind. We've left our homes behind. We've left uh, our families behind. We've left a whole bunch of, how much more do you want us to change, Jesus? We've basically become traveling uh, disciples for you. What else can we change? And Jesus is saying, this isn't an external change. It's not changing your circumstances. It's not changing what's around you. It's a change of the heart. It's a change of the heart. It's a change of the heart that helps our hearts become more gracious and more compassionate and more kind and more passionate for the kingdom. They've changed a lot in their lives, but their hearts still needed work. And that kind of heart surgery doesn't always happen simply or easy. It can sometimes be painful and hurt and is a bit of a journey and doesn't happen overnight. And we can empathize with that, can't we? Change isn't always easy. Um, does anyone recognize this wonderful piece of technology that's going to come up now? Hands up if you recognize that. Amazing. Can you keep your hand up if you owned one of those? I'm going to give 20 points to somebody if you can name the exact make and model of that phone. Does anyone want to give it a go? Three tens, close. 8210 is close. It's not 3310. It's actually a Nokia 5110. A Nokia 5110. The first phone in the world with interchangeable covers on it. You could put a fresh cover on it. Well, when mobile phones came out, my mum got a Nokia 5110. And to this day, that phone is still 33.3% of the phones she's ever owned. Work out the maths, work out the maths. She had it for so long. Basically, it took her ages to work out how to work it. She's not a fan of technology at all. And so as soon as she worked out how to phone people and how to text people and how to play Snake, if you don't know what Snake is, look, out, look for somebody over the age of 30 and they'll explain it to you. But they had three things. You could play, snake, you could text, or you could phone. And as soon as she had that down, she was like, why would that ever change again? So the mobile phone world changed around my mum. Suddenly phones had cameras on them. She wasn't interested in changing. Suddenly you could access the internet from your phone. She was not interested in changing. Suddenly you could get polyphonic ringtones. If you don't know what a polyphonic ringtone is, again, speak to somebody over the age of 30 and they will explain it to you. But it was big news when polyphonic ringtones came out. But she wasn't interested in changing. She kept that phone for years and years and years. It had a seven-day battery life. If you charged your Nokia 5110 on a Monday, you would not need to charge it until Sunday evening again. That is the technology we were working with here. But she did not want to change. So eventually we're like, Mom, you're missing out on the world. There's so much. And she said, okay. I'm going to change. I'm going to trust you. So we got her an iPhone 4S. That was when she made the jump to a different phone. She got an iPhone 4S. And it was like, it was honestly like teaching a, an alien from another planet how to use technology. She was like, what is this thing? And where's the, where's the keyboard? And I was like, no, it's touch screen, mum. She's like, how does that work? That's not cool. She was like freaking out. And we spent ages and ages teaching her how to do it, how to take photos, how to send WhatsApps, how to make video calls. 
And she was like, just give me my Nokia 5110 back. This is black magic. I don't like it. And eventually she got it. Eventually she got it. And now she books hotels on her phone. She has a wee FaceTime with the grandchildren at the weekend. She does her banking online. She's living in the rewards of change, but it was painful getting there. You see, the cost of kingdom change is high, but the reward is even higher. You see, the the disciples have been arguing amongst themselves, who's the greatest? You can almost hear the argument as they're like, well, I've healed 20 people. How many people have you? He's like, oh, it doesn't matter. I've cast out 17 demons. How many demons have you cast out? And then another one's like, oh, but you know, I went up on the mountain with Jesus and saw him do amazing things up there. And, and, and you could see it panning out that they thought oh, all these things are what make us great in the kingdom. And then suddenly Jesus comes cutting across the whole thing. And he's like, hey, if you want to be great, you're actually going to have to change everything. <laughs> You're going to have to change your heart. You're going to have to change the way you view things. You see, they'd got it completely wrong. They thought what they did was the key to greatness. And Jesus is saying, actually, it's who you are that's the key to greatness. They needed to have their hearts accessible and moldable so that he could work on them. They needed to have their eyes off themselves and onto their onto the the advancement of other people around them, putting themselves in the lowest position so that other people could be raised up into Jesus' presence. It's a big change. And the thing is, we have to make a choice to change. It's our choice to make. Nobody is ever going to make the choice for you to change for you. We know that, don't we? If we want to lose weight, nobody's going to be like, I'm going to choose for you to lose weight and it's going to happen. It's our choice. If we want to get better at playing a musical instrument, nobody's going to do that for us. It's our choice. We have to do it in the same way. If we want to become great in the kingdom, the kind of great that Jesus is looking for, we have to make a choice to partner with him to see our hearts changed. Sometimes that's difficult though. It's a painful process of laying down all that is not from God and picking up all that is from him. I think for us, there's kind of two opposite poles that we can come at when it comes to changing our hearts with Jesus. For some of us, it will be laying down a sense of pride, that sense of, I've got this all together. I'm going to do this in my own strength. I don't actually need Jesus to do this. I'm just going to fire on and do it myself. Be laying down that sense of our own significance, laying down our own desire for personal power and authority, laying down the need for our own gain and instead cultivating a hunger and a thirst for seeing others thrive and succeed for some of us our pride needs to meet christ in the change for others of us we might have the opposite problem we'll have lived lives with us at the center of the picture for a very different reason maybe we've taken on that victim mentality where we just feel like change is out of our control things happen to us and there's nothing i can do about it and i'm never going to change and it's beyond me But Jesus doesn't say, maybe you'll change. He says, unless you change. There's an expectation that you can change. The language is not a, you might be able to, but it was like, unless you make the choice to change, you have control over this. Some of us are carrying the disappointments and hurts and losses of the past so tightly that there isn't any room for change. We get into this habit of feeling powerless and like the world is in control of us. But actually, when we partner with Jesus to see change happen, we regain control. We claim back authority that wasn't ever the enemy's, and we 
turn it back into the hands of the king. You see, I think the lovely thing here is that Jesus brings them hope in this moment, the disciples. He doesn't look at them in what could be perceived as a moment of real arrogance or misunderstanding and say, oh my goodness, how many times have I told you guys, right, that's it, we're done, I'm clearing you guys out, I'm going to pick 12 new disciples. Hands up if you want to be a new disciple, Uh, right, we're going to take you, you. He doesn't do that. He sticks with them and he's like, guys, unless you change, this is not going to work for you. Unless you change, the kingdom of heaven is going to be beyond where you are. Come on, come to me, partner with me. Let me help you change your heart. I love this quote from Warren Wearsby. He says this, you and I cannot change or control the world around us, but we can change and control the world within us. And if that's you this morning, if you're like, this feels beyond me, or if you're feeling like, actually, I've got this in control myself. I would love to just encourage you to invite Jesus in this morning and help meet you in the change. Because part of the cost of following Jesus is the expectation that we will change as we follow him. Humility is what's required. Humility to say, I need you, Jesus. I love in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, it says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So firstly, we must change. It's not in our strength. We don't do it ourselves. We don't muster up our own change, but we come with a choice to change. We hand our lives into Jesus' hands and we allow him to mold and shape our hearts and change us for the betterment and advancement of the kingdom and so that we can come to know him even more. So part of the cost of greatness is change. The second uh, cost that we meet in, in pursuing kingdom greatness is humility. Jesus doesn't say, right, here's how you change, guys. If you just change and read your Bible more, that would be great. Or if you just change and pray more, or if you just change and do a bit more worship, or if you just change and do more stuff, that that would that be great. You'll meet kingdom greatness there. He brings out this little child and says, this little child is the key to this whole thing. He called the little child to him, placed the child among them, and he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like the little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Surprisingly, Jesus doesn't point towards the child's innocence like many might have expected, but instead he points towards the humility that comes from being the child in that social situation, the lowest of the low, the least respected, the least authority, the least voice, the least power to change anything. Jesus says, become like this little child. As Jesus brought this little child into the center of the group, he was saying, embrace vulnerability, embrace humility, embrace a full reliance on your heavenly father. Because when we surrender ourselves and we rely fully on the Lord, that is where we encounter him. I get a wee snapshot of this every day just now with Caleb. He's our little boy and he wouldn't survive a day if he was left to his own devices just now. I have to get him up in the morning and his first stumbling block is getting out of his little sleepy sack. That would be phase one where he would fail. So I have to get him out of that. And then I take him downstairs. He can't sort his own food out. So I have to make up his breakfast for him. I feed him some breakfast. Then I put his clothes on. Then I get him ready. Then he's ready for snack. Then he goes again. And every part of the day with him is us 
like providing for him and caring for him. And so often during the day, he comes to us in this pose, which can mean anything. It can mean I want a cuddle. It can mean I, I need uh, food. It can mean I'm really upset and I just want to be with you. But constantly he comes to us with this pose. And I think what Jesus is saying uh, when he brings this little child out is that we are to be people who come to the Lord in this pose. Father, it's not me. I cannot do it on my own. Please, would you pick me up? Please, would you take me where I need to go and help me to do what I need to do and help me to be who I need to be because I cannot be it on my own. If we are going to be people who count the cost, we are going to be people who embrace humility. Why don't we just practice putting our hands up to the Lord just now? God, I need you. We all need the Lord. That's the truth we find on the pages of Scripture, that God is a loving Father, a protector, a provider, a fierce lover of each and every single one of us. There is not one of us that he does not care passionately and deeply about. And so when we come to him with our arms up, his reaction is never going to be to turn his back. His reaction is never going to be to say, you do this on your own. He's going to sweep us up and gather us in every single time because when we fully rely on him, we fully meet him there. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. This is the choice he's calling the disciples into. Do you want to be great in the kingdom? Do you want to see great things happen? Do you want to be at the spearhead of my kingdom advancing around the world? Then enter into a place of full reliance on the Father. Because on your own, this thing is not going to go far. But with me, anything is possible. C.S. Lewis says this, the thing is to rely on God. The time will come when you will regard all this misery as a small price to pay for having been brought to that dependence. Meanwhile, the trouble is that relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing has yet been done. I wonder if for some of us today is the day where we raise our hands to the Lord and say, God, would you pick me up? I've tried doing it on my own. It's not worked. I'm feeling broken, lost, isolated, lonely, powerless. Father, would you pick me up so that I can partner with you and not do this on my own? I think for, for some of us this morning, we have a moment to save ourselves a few years of pain trying to do this on our own. If we can recognize really quickly that actually the Lord is our Father. And that when we humble ourselves and when we put ourselves down in the position of a tiny little child and say, I'm vulnerable, I'm weak, but I'm going to trust fully on you, Lord. That he can do incredible things with us in that moment. If we want to see crime rates drop in this part of the city, if we want to see poverty abolished, if we want to see addictions broken, if we want to see job opportunities increased, if we want to see uh, broken families knitted back together, if we want to see um, businesses thriving and succeeding, if we want to see schools becoming incredibly successful places, we can make a little dent in that when we try things on our own. But when we humble ourselves and partner with Jesus, anything is possible. Anything is possible we want to see the kingdom come in this city then the cost is humility and the reward is revival the cost is humility and the reward is revival
And then finally, Jesus switches gear a bit. Uh, the two things that he chats about first, about the cost of greatness, are kind of internal things that the disciples have to do. There's a bit of change. There's a bit of humbling themselves. There's a bit of uh, sort of internal stuff that they need to do. And then the last piece of, piece of wisdom relates to their outward-focused lives. And he says this, welcome, my people. He's like, if you want to meet me, then you welcome in this little child. And what he's saying in that moment is like, the doors of your life have to be open so that the least and the last and the lost can encounter me through you. He says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. It's a gear shift. Firstly, he's telling them they need to be like children, humble and fully reliant on God. And then he's saying, but if you want to meet me, you need to welcome in these very same children. You need to welcome in the people who are the bottom of the social ladder. You need to welcome in the loneliest the most broken, the most fearful, the furthest from me, your doors of your life need to be open. And it sounds like a bit of a strange thing for Jesus to have said, but it's the way the kingdom works. When we welcome in those who are least likely to receive time from anyone, and we welcome them right into the heart of our lives, actually what we do is we welcome the presence of the Lord right into our lives. His glory is found in unexpected places. Two or three years after I became a Christian, um, me and my friends uh, got a call from Scripture Union. We, we used to run our own Scripture Union camp through our church, um, but they gave us a call in the last week of the school summer holidays, uh, two or three days before the Monday, and they said, hey, we've got a problem. We've got this Scripture Union camp. All these kids are signed up to it, but the leaders uh, have become really sick and they're not going to be able to be there. And so we're just phoning around anyone else who's led a camp this summer, just on the off chance that some of you might be up for coming and leading another camp next week. And so initially we were like, oh no, that sounds like a lot of work and not much fun for the last week of our holidays. But we kind of sat down and we were like, hey, this could be fun. So we agreed to do it. And there was four of us and we were like, we're going to do this. We'll go out and lead this camp. And so we went out and there was like 15 boys and 15 girls they were probably all aged between like 14 and 17 um, and so we went out and we did it uh, and and it was awesome it was so much fun but I encountered this uh, guy there on the first night young man and he was like six foot four he was huge and 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 was built like a rugby player as well but the most gentle guy I've ever met in my life and you could see really quickly that he'd experienced some real difficult stuff in his life you know when you see something they've just got a heaviness about the way they do things and so we started getting to know each other a little bit across the course of this week and he started sharing some of his story with me um, and it turned out his dad had never been there and his mum had really severe mental health problems and so she was in and out of his life and would often try and hurt him and then would disappear and would come back maybe three or four years later and would parachute in and parachute out again and so he basically lived with his grand permanently and he just had a really rotten life up until that point but it turned out his grand stayed about two minutes around the corner from where I stayed in Glasgow. Um, and so at the end of this scripture union camp, I was like, we've loved getting to know you this week. Our church do some youth stuff. Why don't you come along? And so he started coming along to our youth stuff. Um, and our guys were amazing. They were like these, like they were like a bunch of like little rough and ready Neds from White Inch who'd encountered the Lord. And it was just the funniest thing to watch. And so they were like, and welcomed him in like a brother. And it was the sweetest thing to watch. And then he started explaining more and he was like talking about how he was getting bullied in school and our guys were like, we'll come up there and batter them. Just show us who they are. We're going to do it. And, and we had to explain to them how Jesus didn't really do battering people in his name and that there was probably other ways that we could solve it. 
But he found a place to call home. And he gave his life to Jesus about three or four months after he'd been in our youth group. Uh, and he stuck around uh, for the whole course of school. Um, and I remember at one point his mum parachuted back in. I think it was maybe three or four weeks after he'd given his life to Jesus. His mum came back into his life and just caused a bunch of havoc around it and was around his gang. So he came and stayed in our house for a couple of weeks while his mum was back on the scene before she left again. And so he was just part of our lives. Like this guy that we'd met a, a year before was suddenly living in our house and we were feeding him breakfast and all that stuff. And it was amazing. And it was tough and it was hard and it was fun all at the same time. Anyway, he ended up going off to uni and he got connected in with a really good church. And then I moved up to Aberdeen uh, and we kind of lost contact a little bit after that. Um, and Sarah and I were on, I, I can't remember, we were away for an anniversary or something like that in St. Andrews uh, a couple of years ago. And I see this like six foot seven monstrous man like walking towards me. And I'm like, is that? And he comes up and gives me this big bear hug. And I'm like, oh, it's him. And he's like, here's my fiance. Uh, I've met this girl and she's the most amazing thing. He introduced me to his fiance. And then, he was, and then I was like, what are you doing with yourself these days? And he was like, I've actually just accepted a job as the youth pastor at this church in Edinburgh. And I'm about to go into schools and tell kids about Jesus. And he was absolutely buzzing for it. And do you know what? I don't think I've ever experienced the joy of the Lord as much as I did in that moment when he explained to me what the Lord had done in his life from the point where he was. And I think the lesson I learned in that moment was like, I'd welcomed him into my life. And, and in turn, what I'd really been doing is welcoming the presence of Jesus. Because when he hugged me before we went away, I experienced like the power and presence of the Lord. Like, I don't think I've ever done. We walked away from him and I was like, I just, kept, I just kept saying, I was like, I can't believe it. I can't believe he's a youth pastor. I can't believe that's happened. How does that even happen? That's amazing. I was like the whole way back to the car. I was like, that's just incredible. Jesus' words here are really, really simple. He's calling us to live lives that are open for anyone and everyone to come in and experience him at the very heart of who we are. The words are really simple. The following up of those words are really complicated and difficult. How do we make our lives open enough for people to come in? How do we open our homes? How do we live in a way that's interruptible? You know, I was just thinking about this week. It would take a risk, wouldn't it? We would have to become a risk-taking people. We'd have to risk it with our time. We'd have to risk it with our money. We'd have to risk it with a whole bunch of stuff if we were going to invite people into that radical kind of family. And everything in the world around us says, don't do that. Don't take risks at all. I was watching, we, we got a TV license recently and I was amazed to see how many adverts are around protecting yourself and what you have. There's insurance adverts that say, oh, what if something really bad happens? You've got to be insured for this, this, and this. Then there's double glazing adverts that are like, oh, you've got to get double glazing in your house. You've got to protect yourself from the wind. You've got to be, and then you've got um, NCAP five-star Euro rated cars that are like, you've got to be in the safest car because you've got to do this. And a whole bunch of stuff we're being told is like, be protected, be comfortable, be safe. Don't take risks. Cover yourself up in bubble wrap and make sure nothing ever happens to you. What if Jesus isn't calling us to be people who lead safe lives? What if the words on that book actually say, risk it, take a risk, get out of your comfort zone, do something wild, and when I meet you in that place, watch what happens. What if we're not called to be safe people? What if we're called to live risky lives? 
the kind of lives that the world looks in at and thinks, oh goodness, they're a bit mad, aren't they? I think the world looked at Jesus and thought, oh goodness, he's a bit mad, isn't he? What if we were never meant to live in safety and security all the time, but instead to be people who take some risks, go on adventures, put ourselves in situations that may cost us something, but that allow us to have the opportunity to shine Jesus' light in exactly the right places where he's most needed. Guys, I really feel strongly about this as, as your pastor. This city is not going to change when we are huddled up, cozy and safe in our houses. It's not going to change when we're in a set routine that leaves no space for the Holy Spirit to interrupt and do something wild. It's not going to be changed by playing it safe and not being willing to lay our lives down in pursuit of him. This city will change when we take some risks with the Savior who risked it all for us and didn't only risk it but gave it all for us. And so I have a genuine question for you. Do we want to see this city transformed? That's a, that's a question that requires an answer. Do we want to see this city transformed? But do we really want to see this city transformed? Not just like a Sunday, like, yeah, that would be nice. It would be good to see this city transformed. But like a genuinely, do we want to be the kind of people who take risks in a way that people who do not know Jesus get to encounter Jesus because we said we're not going to play it safe? Do we want that? Yeah. Amazing. Let's stand. I just want to read this quote over us before we pray. It's by John Stott, and he says this, insistence on security is incompatible with the way of the cross. What daring adventures the incarnation and the atonement really were. What a breach of convention and decorum that Almighty God should renounce his privileges in order to take human flesh and bear human sin. Jesus had no security except in his Father. So to follow Jesus is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger, and rejection for his sake. Follow Jesus is to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger, and rejection for his sake. I wonder for us today what securities we need to lay down or what routines need to be interruptible to allow God to use us to do miraculous things in this place.